friends, welcome to the Ransomed Heart Podcast. And we are in the midst of a very special offering. We went down into the basement and discovered a set of recordings that go back to 1997 with Brent Curtis and myself speaking on the sacred romance. Many of our listeners have loved reading Brent's work in the sacred romance and have never had a chance to hear his voice. And so we are airing a 10-part series here on the sacred romance from those conference tapes. So this is week two, and I'll be speaking on the message of the arrows. Good to be with you this evening to take this journey of the heart together. Brent has been using some images and some film clips and different words to try and bring us back from the far points of the globe that we all sort of wander to in any given week back to the places in our hearts that mean the most. He's been talking about an unknown romancing that all people experience at one level or another. I will never forget the first time that I kissed my wife. I will never forget the first time that I galloped on a horse on my grandfather's ranch. I will never forget the first time that I picked up a fly rod. Moments in our lives that are sort of tucked away down beneath the external story the coats and hats, the things that we do to just try and make life work. Beneath all of that are the images and the sounds and even the, the scents, the smells of the romance. I can still see the dust that would collect on the dashboard of my grandfather's pickup truck as we would drive down dirt roads together on his ranch in Oregon. And I can still smell my other grandfather's handkerchiefs, which had the scent of his cologne, even to this day, although he's been gone for many years. There are places in our lives where the romance has called to us, inviting us out into a life of far greater beauty and drama and heroism than most of us live with Monday through Friday. And as Brent said, if the romance were the only Thing that we experienced, if the romance were the only message of our lives, we would search for it with all our heart for all our lives. We would literally move heaven and earth until we found it. But there is another message that comes to all of us in our lives, starting from very young, and it's what we've called the message of the arrows. There are only two things that pierce the human heart. Simone Weil said, one is beauty, the other is affliction. And the story of the journey of your heart through this world is the story of how you have experienced both and what you have done with your heart as a result. Brent really got the better task tonight. I feel kind of like Moses, sort of leading people into the wilderness. Wonderful things lie ahead, really, truly magnificent things 
But there is no way around this journey into the darker places of our own experiences, the arrows that lie deep within us. You cannot go around, just as in the Exodus, the people could not go around the desert. They had to go through it. Some of you might have followed a story that uh, was in the newspaper several years ago. Uh, it caught my attention because it seems to capture so powerfully this other theme. It was a story of a custody struggle of a, um, a little four-year-old boy whose real name is Danny Warbutton, but in the newspaper accounts he was referred to as Baby Richard. And what had happened was that Danny had been given up for adoption at birth, had been taken in by a loving family, a firefighter and his wife and their other children, another boy, an older boy, and Danny had become their son. Four years into the only life that he had ever known, his biological father announces that he wants Danny back. He goes to court. It goes all the way up to the... Illinois Supreme Court, and they grant his biological father custody. This is the, the story told by Bob Green in the Chicago Tribune that uh, took place the day that Danny's life was changed forever. Please, Mommy, don't make me go alone. Please, go with me, Mommy. The four-year-old child known as Richard was sobbing so convulsively he seemed barely able to breathe. His adoptive mother was holding him inside the home in Schaumburg where Richard had lived his whole life. This was just before 3 p.m. Sunday. I don't want to go. The boy tried to scream through his sobs, but the words were choking him. Don't make me leave. There was no way for the woman he has always known as his mother to answer him. She was sobbing too. We'll love you forever she managed to say. But don't make me go, he begged. Please, please, don't send me away. Minutes away, a van carrying Richard's biological father and mother, she is the woman who willingly placed him up for adoption at birth and sent word to the biological father that the boy was dead, was headed toward the house. The van, driven by the attorney, was on its way to pick Richard up and drive him to the biological parents' home. Richard had never seen them. This would be their first meeting. Richard's clothes had been packed, his belongings, the belongings of a child's life, were ready to be carried onto the front lawn so that they could be loaded into the van once it arrived. The boy's head rolled back, and his voice was the sound of utter terror, of grief and mourning. Mommy, please don't leave me, he cried. Not getting an answer from her, seeing that she was unable to get the words out, that she was as devastated as he, he turned to his adoptive father a foot away. You, Daddy, he called, stopping the crying for a moment, allowing himself a few seconds of hope. You can come with me. His adoptive father, a firefighter, dissolved into tears. Richard's older brother, seven years old, stood weeping, looking up at this. Richard reached down his arm toward his brother. Come with me, Richard called down to him. I don't want to go to the sleepover alone. Richard's brother's face was a mask of pure agony. He took Richard's hand in his, and Richard tried to pull the older boy off the floor and up to him. Come to the sleepover with me, Richard begged his brother. I don't want to go to the sleepover. Apparently, this was what, in his panic and confusion, Richard was partially able to process. 
that he was going to a sleepover of uncertain duration at a house that he had never seen. The thought appeared to terrify him. They go out onto the front lawn. The friend of the family has to literally peel Danny's arms off of his mother. He's crying, Mommy, I'll be good. The biological parents promise that he can call his uh, mother and father and his brother anytime he wants to. They never let him. And it shouldn't be surprising that the media reported last January that uh, Danny's biological father had abandoned Danny and his birth mother and was living in a hotel with another woman. The best human life is unspeakably sad. In fact, it was Moses who wrote in Psalm 90 that our life lasts 70 or 80 years maybe, yet their span is but trouble and sorrow. And George Herbert, the poet, said, I cried when I was born, and every day shows why. How has life turned out differently than you thought it would? In the life that you're living now, is this the life that you dreamed about when you were a child? There are a fortunate few. But the fact is that we live in a very broken world of very broken hearts and so much of our energy is spent pretending that it's better than it is that our friendships are deeper than they really are that our marriages are more loving than they really are that our work is more meaningful than it truly is you were made for perfect love and for really meaningful work you were made for the life of heroic intimacy that Brent was talking about. The heart of a woman and the heart of a man together, the heart of a community living for something wonderfully beautiful, heroic, noble, and that is not the life we have. So what do you do? There is a song in the uh, musical uh, Les Miserables, The Miserable Ones, that powerfully captures how we begin all of our journeys at some level begin with wonder but something happens along the way to our hearts the story uh, for those of you who haven't uh, read Hugo's novel or seen the musical uh, in this particular song the woman singing her name is Fontaine the song is called I dreamed a dream she is a single mother and she is trying to support herself and her daughter in uh, impoverished uh, Paris several hundred years ago and she works 15 hours a day and so she has her daughter in the care of another family that live out in the country and she just sends them money to support her daughter this is the only job she has uh, work is scarce and uh, in the course of the opening part of the story Fontaine loses her job because she won't give in to the sexual advances of the uh, manager of the, of the factory. And so she's kicked out. And she is alone uh, on the streets now of Paris, penniless, destitute. And she sings, I dreamed a dream in days gone by when I was young and life worth living. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. That is certainly Danny's story. That is the story of so many in this room. 
See, the arrows come to all of us in very personal ways, and they start usually very early in our stories. Angry words from a parent who had too much to drink, the class bully that strips you of your courage in front of the rest of your friends, the one true love of your life who betrays you deeply. I haven't endured the tragedy that some of you have. Some of you are bleeding still from major arrows. Others of you merely the accumulation of a thousand small stabs. One of the major arrows uh, that came to me in my life was through my father's alcoholism and the sense that um, I was left to figure out life for myself right at the very age that Brent was describing earlier uh, when a young boy is wondering what it means to be a man. I rocketed off the deep end, uh, tried just about everything that's available to adolescents and American culture. And all of that was a scream that someone engage my heart someone tell me I am not alone in this story. I was um, arrested when I was 15, and uh, they took me down to the police station for breaking and entering. And um, they called my folks. My dad came down, and of course, you know, just the shame and the terror of all that. And uh, we went back home. I don't even remember what my folks did. I had probably already broken their heart too many times. But all I remember from that story is that about an hour later, I'm out on the street again, free. I mean, I wasn't even grounded. I remember sitting on the curb a couple uh, houses down from my folks' house, and the realization hit me, you know, I really am on my own in this world. And then I took that arrow, you see, and I just shoved it clean through by saying, I don't care. I'll make it on my own. And so much of the story of my life has been defined around that arrow. I won't need anyone. I'm on my own, and I will make it on my own. What have you done with the arrows that you've known? Because you see, it's not just the arrows. It's the message of the arrow. It's what they teach our hearts. It's the deep sentences and the vows that come out of those sentences. I will never love him again. I will never be vulnerable again. I will never risk fill in the blank again. Every human heart is asking three questions, at least. But these three, who am I? Really? Where in this world will I find life? Really? And what is it that God wants from me? Or what is his heart toward me? And see, the romance, in answer to those questions, who am I really? The romance says someone special, loved, planned for, that our heart is good and was made for someone and for something very, very good. 
But the arrows come and they say, no, no, you are alone. You are dark. You are twisted. You are dirty. You are bad. Where is life to be found? The romance says only in heroic intimacy, only in learning to love boldly, to give our hearts away in sacrifice and in worship. And the arrows say, never, never, ever let life out of your control. Where is life to be found? The arrows teach us only in self-protection. And finally, what is God's heart toward us? What does he want from us? The romance says that God's heart toward us is good and that he has moved heaven and earth to win us. Trust him with all your heart. And the arrows say, don't do it. Don't do it. Finally, the arrows teach us that we are alone, powerless against the heartless universe. How have you handled the arrows you've known and the message that they've carried into your life? So much of what we call our personality, the coats and hats that we put on to sort of make it through this world, really are a result of how we've handled the romance and the arrows. We come into this world set up for a loss of heart, and becoming a Christian doesn't solve this dilemma. As James Houston says, despair is the fate of every desiring soul. Every soul desires deeply. Every soul is more than disappointed. I think of a woman, for example, whose parents were good. Um, Good parents, they did what they could to provide for her. In fact, they bought her the finest things, everything in its time and, and the nice car and the college education, but they never, ever pursued her heart. I think of the, the uh, young man whose um, sense of identity and worth came from sports, from athletics, from getting good grades, but he was never known by his father, never called out to be a man and just how they've gone on to handle that in the world now. How would you feel? This may sound overly dramatic to some of you. I mean, some of you are sitting here saying, John, come on, life is not that bad, you know? I mean, we're comfortably dressed. We all probably had dinner. We were sitting with some of our friends in this lovely church listening to a really wonderful seminar. I mean, John, you just, you're over-dramatizing this a little bit. Let me just ask you a question. How would you feel if I told you that this is eternity? You're in it right now. This is it. No, what you have right now, this is going to go on forever. That's hell. <laughs> That's awful. I mean... My life is rich. It is. I have a wonderful marriage. I have three marvelous boys. I have some of the richest friendships anybody in the world could have. And my life is unspeakably sad, just like yours. Because you were made for a very different world than the one you find yourself in. We all live east of Eden. 
And as Kierkegaard says, despair has become quite a rare phenomenon, not because there is less of it around, but because of our casual assumption that if we don't feel despair, then we aren't in despair. You see, the romance woos us out. It comes to us. It calls to us. It promises a life of beauty, of intimacy, of friendship, of mission and quest and companionship. And then the arrows come right on its heels and they seem to threaten our very existence and they urge us to clutch up, shrink back, put up the defenses. The division tears our soul in two, literally in two. As the scripture says, a broken heart, who can bear? And the phenomenon, literally, of, of multiple personality disorder is just the, the farther reaches of the expression of what happens as the heart is broken again and again and again. And so what do we do? How do most of us handle these two unbelievably conflicting messages? I mean, I sit in my office and I hear as people take me into their confidence and share their stories with me, the most unbelievable tragedy. And then I walk outside, and it is the most staggeringly beautiful day. I don't get it. I don't get it. What do you do with that? Well, what most people do is we decide that we will not want so much. We kill desire because it causes us too much pain. We just decide, look, give me the J. Evans Pritchard version of Christianity. You know, just tell me where to draw the lines and the little graphs and I'll do the thing and, you know, forget the rest of this stuff. You're baiting me, right? Don't lead me out like this. Don't set me up for another loss of heart. We kill desire and we call it sanctification. It is unspeakably sad. The only thing more tragic than the message of the arrows we've known is how we handle them. We finish the job. It hurts so much to desire that what we choose to do is to kill it, to kill our hearts, to put them away, to just get on with life, uh, get busy, get to work, do something, or try and deaden it somehow with you know, an addiction of some kind or um, getting yourself lost in your work or some other place. The problem is, you see, desire is what takes us to God. We are desire. And desire is the most essential part of the human heart. And so to kill desire is to lose hope of life. Proverbs as Brent quoted, says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Don't kill your heart. You need it. You need it for the journey ahead. You can't get there without it. To kill desire is to kill your soul. If we deny the arrows and the unspeakable sadness of life, you will lose your soul through pretense. Right? People have the little posters, you know, if life sends you lemons, make lemonade. <laughs> right? It's unbelievable. On the other hand, if we embrace the arrows as the final truth of life, if we say, yes, that's what's true, finally life is only sad, 
the popular t-shirt or bumper sticker, life sucks, then you die. If we embrace that, you lose your soul too. You lose your soul in either extreme. Kind of this version is sort of the, almost the existential no, nobleness of sort of living in despair. I thank you, God, that I am not like those Christians that collect precious moments figurines. <laughs> This is the dilemma. This is the human dilemma. And the gospel of tips and techniques will never, ever see you through. It will not work. We need something else to recover heart. Psalm 73, 26, I'd just like to leave you with. And it goes like this. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This evening is just the opportunity to kind of bring you in from the far reaches of the globe and put you back in touch at some level, we hope, with the issues of your own heart and the hearts of the people that you love to begin to just stir these things up and remember what it really is like to live in this world. As Henry Nouwen says, an answer before a real question does damage to the soul. You must be in the questions before the answers will mean anything to you. Jesus, you are called the shepherd of our souls. And we need you to shepherd our hearts tonight. Shepherd us very deeply and closely. Keep each person's soul, their heart, as we go. And bring us back with a sense that you do plan on doing something in our life. Maybe something that we never dreamed possible. And this we invite you to do. In your name, amen. You've been listening to part two of a 10-part series on the sacred romance with Brent Curtis and myself, John Eldridge, here on the Ransomed Heart Podcast. 